You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, September 1st, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Evan Bernstein. And a happy Knowledge Day to all our Russian friends. And Russian knowledge listeners. Day. I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> oh, I wish we celebrated Knowledge Day. <laughs> the first of September is a not a holiday in Russia, but it's recognized as the beginning of the school year. Hence, uh, knowledge, hence knowledge Day. I thought it'd be more exciting than that. Yeah. You want exciting? Yeah. I'll I live for excitement. All right. So here's exciting. In 1914, on wow. September 1st, right, mm-hmm. 1914, mm-hmm. the passenger pigeon became extinct as the last surviving bird of the colorful Native American species of dove. That's not exciting. That's sad. It died at the Cincinnati Zoo. That's not exciting. World of birding. It's a, it's a, hang on, Bob. Here's one for you. Here is up, right up here. 1997, September 1st, the discovery of a new subatomic particle was announced called the exotic meson. Have you heard uh-huh. of that? Uh, I've heard of mesons, but exotic ones? Uh, yeah, scientists maybe. speculated the exotic meson might comprise four quarks, unlike other particles that have three. Probably like Exciting. a million subatomic particles. It's probably one discovered on every day. It's two. Uh, not that often, but yeah, it's too many. We gotta, Whatever. Have you discovered one, Steve? Pair it down. Have <laughs> we got to pair no. it down? <laughs> but that's three items all at once. How are we supposed to juggle those? You know... It's a lot of knowledge. The knowledge day. Mm-hmm. But then again, Duh. it is knowledge day. You can only deal with one task at a time. All right. Well, I'll cut it back to one for next week. The first news item we're going to talk about is actually multitasking and the fact that people can't do it. That was a good segue. It was. Nope. What was I doing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, in our increasingly technological society, people are you know talking on their cell phone while they're texting, while they're reading their email, while they're walking down the street listening to an iPod, whatever. And it turns out people really can't do that very well. In fact, people who tend to multitask more and think they're good at it were actually far more impaired by multitasking than people who thought they weren't good at it and tended not to do it. This is, was a, the result of a uh, Stanford University study. Uh, which is very interesting. So the, that leads to the question of, you know, why... The, it's a, it makes sense that people are bad at multitasking. If you understand, you know, the neurology behind it, we really only have one sort of stream of consciousness that we can follow. Um, you can diffuse your attention, you know, or you can, you know, switch back and forth among things, but you really can't do... Remember what Data did on that one episode where... Yeah, oh he was God. listening to a symphony and... Absorbing a book at the same time and doing a mathematical thinking, thinking equation of, and yeah. kissing that and kissing kind of, that girl and he was kissing his his girlfriend yeah and he was thinking about <laughs> and what kind being of food a fictional to feed character. his cat yeah and she was happy that she was in there somewhere right so. <laughs> it was a good example so anyway you're saying we're not like a fictional robot that's <laughs> right <laughs> android android Started? whatever <laughs> robot it's like, toaster it's like CBPO right. <laughs> This is exactly why people who talk on cell phones when they're driving have a higher rate of accidents because you can't pay attention to your, the conversation and to the road 
Well, certainly that makes sense. At the same time. Just last week, a girl told me with a straight face that she is confident in her ability to text while driving. And that terrifies me. Her her confidence means that she's actually worse at it than somebody who is less confident. I I didn't think I could be more terrified than I was when she first told me. But now... Texting while driving. Don't do it. But Steve, does that also mean that just talking to your friend next to you in the car is also impairs you a bit? Yeah, it does. The The question is, why doesn't it impair you as much? And there, there are two speculations. One is that while they do uh, distract your attention, they're also another set of eyes. So they may see ah. a, a, something in the road and say, hey, look out. You know, So <laughs> they, they might compensate a little bit for that. But also, mm-hmm. it, it may take more focus to talk to somebody on the phone because you lack the visual feedback of somebody that you're talking to in person. You yeah, can, I mean, yeah. it's easier to sit next to someone in silence than it is to s- you sit on the phone in silence. So if there was a long pause, you wouldn't worry about it. And it's not a perfectly clear signal. There's often yeah. delay. You're trying to concentrate on what, you know, through the static sometimes as to what the words are that they're saying. It does take more effort. And a lot of times you're holding, you're actually holding the cell phone. Well, that's true, although, and that's the reason for the hands-free laws in some states. However, the data really shows it doesn't help that much, that it's not the fact that one hand is holding the phone. It's that you're paying attention to the conversation, and that even with the hands-free, it's really just as bad. Just as bad. Not even a little bit better? Uh, Wow. It may be a little bit better, but it is bad enough that it is significantly impairing. The significant component is... The, the concentrating on the, con- on the conversation, not that one hand is occupied holding the phone. So what they got to do is they got to they turn the person that's on the other end of the line and make them into a hologram sitting next to you, and then it'll be a little safer. A little bit, right. But they have to yeah, be able to see that, through though. the hologram as well. Yeah. That's right. Or you could just we cut that, that out. You could just have collision detection in the cars, you know, some AI so that the car itself will be paying attention. Or to you could routine. just stop talking on the friggin' phone while you're driving. What well, is that let's important? not get crazy. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, come on. <laughs> I'm sorry, but riding my bike around town, if I nearly get, if I don't nearly get careened by somebody in an SUV talking on their cell phone every day, then it's a good day. Mm-hmm. A rare day at that. Right. The bottom line here is do not multitask. Do not walk and chew gum at the same time. Right. Or remember that, um, George Costanza was watching TV, eating and having sex at the same time. <laughs> Definitely your wow. performance suffers when you, when you try to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so don't do that. FYI. There you go. Yeah, you might, you might oh, you could do it. Just your, your, yeah, your you performance your is going to suffer. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> your TV watching will be way off. Right. You'll totally miss that plot line on Lost. <laughs> So we do have an update on the methane on Titan. Oh, good. I was worried about I it. I know. How's it really... doing? Is it still smelly? So if you remember, Saturn's largest moon, Titan, very interesting moon that uh, has uh, an atmosphere and has lakes on its surface. The question is, were these lakes composed of liquid ethane or methane? Or methane. Yeah, or methane if you live in the <laughs> UK. And this is more than of more than of just passing interest because methane is a lot more interesting because at the te- at those temperatures methane actually might exist in a liquid as a vapor and as an ice it can go into all three phases just like water on earth whereas ethane it would be more stable when it was turned into liquid form so methane would you you could 
conceive that methane might be a little bit more predisposed to some kind of exotic life forms, you know, evolving on Titan, if it's even possible. What they so they but they didn't know if these lakes on on Titan were ethane or methane. However, they've discovered now fog at the I believe it's the South Pole of Titan. Now fog or is probably methane clouds. Fog means that those lakes are methane because ethane wouldn't turn into fog. Uh-huh. So it's one more bit of uh, information that we can infer from that that this is probably you know, methane existing in all three phases on Titan, which is really interesting. And it's, it's fascinating to think of a, a moon like Titan, a world where there is some other material, in this case methane, that fills the same niche that water does on the Earth. Imagine you're raining methane and collecting into lakes and then evaporating into fog. It's interesting. Yeah, I doubt. I don't think methane is uh, can really hold a candle to water and all of the weird no, it'd be characteristics. Yeah, I prefer water myself. I mean, I've, I was recently reading an article saying that there's something like a hundred different anomalous characteristics about water that are just kind of bizarre that very few other compounds, molecules uh, have. And of course, it, one of the things that make water so special, so, so uh, crucial to life and everything, but there's so many different aspects to it. Uh, I don't think you can compare it to water, methane. The other thing is that it's damn cold on Titan, and you wonder if it's, if it's even just warm enough for you know, chemical reactions to occur at a sufficient rate to, to, for something like life to be sustainable. Or would it just be really slow with the life... That, that existed. Yeah, slow motion bacteria. Uh, experience or existence, yeah, would it ha- yeah, basically be a hundred or a thousand times slower metabolically than life on Earth. Well, how cold is it? It's cold enough for methane to be a liquid. Negative 179 degrees Celsius or 94 Kelvin. As we said, damn cold, 94 <laughs> Kelvin. Titan is one of the one of the moons in our solar system that's on the short list of like the most interesting places we want to visit. I think Europa is the other one. And Enceladus is probably the third one. These are, although Europa and Enceladus may act, Enceladus may actually have liquid water in them, so that would make them much more interesting. But Titan still is is on the short list, I think. Um, have you guys seen the recent picture of the Loch Ness monster in? Aye, I lot. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> have you seen it? It's pretty impressive. I saw yeah. one. I was yeah. pretty underwhelmed. Maybe you guys saw a different one than I did. Well, the one I saw looked more like yeah. Cthulhu than yeah, the it looks like a, right, yeah. exactly, or yeah, or twenty thousand the squid, the from giant 20, squid, leagues under the sea. Right, I prefer Cthulhu. Right, or it uh, looks like the wake of a boat. Right, I was hey, thinking the same exact thing. A kind of weird wake, but that's right. Yeah, that, that's what that was one of my thoughts as well. And one thing I couldn't understand was that. Somebody was saying, Jason Cook told the son, uh, he said, I couldn't believe it. It's just like the description of Nessie. Well, what descriptions have you been reading? Yeah, right? Yeah. I guess it's whatever you want it to be. Because, right. well, it's, a, it's a white like blob a, with tentacles, right? Well, like the, the, the image is, but yeah. your image of Nessie in general is, what are they called? Plesiosaurs? A plesiosaur. Plesiosaurs? Right. Yeah, with like a chunky body with little flippers and a skinny neck. Right. And a long tail. But, yeah, so it doesn't look like a plesiosaur. It does look like a squid. But the, the image itself is this, you know, an elongated white blob with two pairs of tentacles. There's actually five, right? So it might be like two coming out to the sides and then one going straight back. But those can easily – the elongated blob could easily be a boat. And then the pairs of, of white lines coming out the sides and then the one yeah, going through the back the could be the wake. 
right? And, and if you click around and look at other places along the lake, you will see other Nessies. Yeah, right, see exactly. Other things that look slightly even no more way. like boats. Oh, yeah. my God. And There's a whole <laughs> family of them. <laughs> this one isn't it even the best be. example. Well, we always said there had to be a population of Nessies for Nessie to exist. Right. Let's right. Just right. Oh, yeah. That it's obviously a sustainable of population of motorboats. Right. But we are, we are seeing here <laughs> is a new phenomenon of Google monsters, right? Or, or Google paranormal phenomena. People looking on Google Earth at yeah, these satellite the images. One? The last one was Atlantis. Oh, Atlantis. Atlantis. Yeah. That's right. Steve, I think yeah. I got a better, a better one. Google Paradolia. Google Paradolia. Google Dolia. Oh, there we go. Google Dolia. We're going to have coined that term. Uh, one more quick news item, then we're going to do a few emails. Recent study, very nice. I like the when these studies come out, looking at the evolution of mice in this in the sand dunes out west now these are, are deer mice deer mice are normally very dark furred because they are camouflaged for the dark soils that they t- that they tend to live in and around but several thousand years ago in Nebraska these sand dunes came into existence in this one area of Nebraska and the of course they're sand colored and the this, the deer mice that were living there uh, evolved a sandy-colored, sort of blondish-looking fur in order to be better camouflaged in that environment. So this created the opportunity to to find out, well, what's the mutation that resulted in the change in the fur color, and when did it happen? What they discovered was that, you know, geologically, the sand dunes have been around for about eight to 15,000 years, but only about 4,000 years ago, this population of mice had a mutation in a specific gene, a gene that they named a Gouti, A-G-O-U-T-I. And it was a, d- a single deletion mutation in the Gouti gene, which, which resulted in the change in the color from, from dark, like a dark brown to a light sandy color. Uh, and then after that mutation, it's, it occurred, cropped up about 4,000 years ago. It rapidly spread through the population, and now it predominates. So they also did some studies and found that the the mice with the light-colored fur had about a 0.5% survival advantage over the dark-furred mice, hmm. which doesn't sound like a lot. Adds up. But it adds up, right? Yeah, give it a couple thousand years, you know, and, and that probably not even that much. Mice have a pretty short generation time, and then that, that gene predominates. So what this is is an excellent example of the occurrence of a of the spontaneous occurrence of a favorable mutation that then was selected for and predominated in a population in the very recent past, something that creationists say can't happen or that doesn't happen, and there it is a, re- a really nice documented case. So I think this is going to become a really a real classic example of mutation and selection and natural selection. And one of the nice things about this is that there's no real human element here. Like you remember the peppered moths. Which oh, is another yeah, it's, it's yeah, a classic, classic example. But Creatius always classic. said, "Well, yeah, but the selective pressure was provided by the by industrialization. You know, it was sort of artificial. So, I know it's completely yeah, well, irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. But that's what they said. So here now is an example of, of you know the environmental change was not man made. It was not industrialization. It was purely just a, you know changing." You know, just a ge- geological process. And didn't we also recently have lizards that were showing obvious change? 
mm-hmm. in accordance with their environments on an island, was it? Yeah, no, it was out west. Um, the, they adapted to fire ants through the presence of fire ants. So uh, this is the United States. You know, fire ants have, are, I think, an invasive species, and this one species of lizard evolved the ability to... They actually retained a juvenile characteristic of shaking off the ants. The ants actually could kill them. You know, they can get under their scales right. yeah. and, and, and kill them. So... Um, but but the the difference there is that that was the predominance of a gene of a gene variety that already existed in the population, which is nice. Uh, it still shows that you know population genetics, a gene, the gene frequencies will shift back and forth and can change dramatically based upon selective pressure. So that proves natural selection, but it doesn't show the random uh, occurrence of a mutation that provides a new mutation that is favorable to that environment. Yeah. So it's this still has one element that that example was missing. The same thing, oh yeah, I think you're thinking of the yet another example was the the lizards which is on are on the islands in the Pacific that were I think moved from one island to another uh, 50 years ones. yeah yes. like 50 years yeah. ago and then they adapted to the insects or in the in on the new island. Right, but, to their specific surroundings, yeah. yeah. But again, we're not yet sure if that was simply selecting for for varieties alleles that were already present, or or if it involved new mutations. Right. The beauty here is that we can show genetically this is a new mutation. It cropped up at random, and there you go. This is, I think, probably closest. The other the other evidence, which is actually more thorough and more elegant, which does show the same thing, is uh, the E. coli evidence. Remember that. The research of Richard Lenski, where he documented hundreds, you know, thousands of generations of E. coli, and they actually developed three separate mutations that added up together to the ability to use citrate as a new food source. So again, although it was in the lab, it was artificial selection, but still a very, very elegant demonstration. So all the pieces are there. You know, creationists say there's no evidence for natural selection or mutations can only be harmful. It's all BS. The ev- there's multiple mm-hmm. lines of evidence we have now of all the different pieces necessary for, for natural selection to occur. So add that to your list of iconic examples of evolution. It's a good one. It's very good. We're going to do a couple of emails before we go on to our interview. The first email comes from Adam Waller from Aiken, South Carolina, and Adam writes, I recently came across an article that talked about the possible usefulness of the human appendix. I always thought and was taught that the appendix had no real purpose and was just left over. Could you please talk about this and the implications that this study could have for the evolution creation debate? The study was in the Journal of Evolutionary Biology. Thanks for all you do. As a recovering Southern Baptist and a new skeptic, I find that your podcast very useful in my skeptical training. Well, thanks, Adam. Yeah, thanks, Adam. You're correct, obviously, the, about the appendix so for years People thought that it was a vestigial, unneeded organ. But now, uh, the past few years, um, a lot of the scientific journals have kind of been arguing that uh, that the appendix probably does have a, a, a defined role. It's funny that the first time, you know, you you know what the appendix is, you hear about it, but you never really see it. You know what it looks like and where exactly it is. I remember the first time I saw what an appendix exactly, exactly what it looked like. I was um, dressed as a zombie at my haunted house. <laughs> Scaring, huh. scaring the crap out of people. and Ripping for extra, the innards out of someone. Yes. Well, for, for extra effect, I bought this anatomically precise human intestine. It was really nice. It was beautifully beautifully people, made intestine. Yeah, scared people like those kind of details. But <laughs> I, I, can, I can appreciate it. I mean, no, they, they couldn't. They don't care. They couldn't care at all <laughs> that it was accurate. 
But I liked it because I saw this little thing sticking out, and I went to the description of it where I bought it. And it's like, yeah, this anatomically precise, and this is, and it even has the uh, the appendix. So that was my first uh, experience of actually seeing exactly what this thing is. And it's it is it's a little worm like projection that sticks out of the big intestine right right when it turns into the small intestine. And you might have heard it referred to as the vermiform appendix. Vermiform just means like worm-like. So that's what it looks like. It's really tiny. And and like I said, the prevailing thought for, geez, for generations now is that this is, it's useless, it's vestigial. Now, Bob, my first, the the first time I saw what an appendix looked like, I had my head in an actual corpse. (laughs) Why was your head in there? Your whole head, yeah. You're doing it wrong, Steve. Because you have to see it really close up, you know. Stuck I'm jealous. Enti- what? Did, yeah, what that smell? Terrible. Like? Oh. I had that smell on me for a year. I hated it. Oh. A year? Yeah. A corpse oh. smell for a year? Get it? Yeah, it's wonderful. Like, <laughs> here comes well, formaldehyde. Formaldehyde. Yeah. Bob, I I actually do have to take a bit of issue though. Okay. With what you're saying? Um, because you're uh, equating vestigial with useless, which from uh, what I've been reading, particularly about this study, and and what I've previously read about the idea of vestigial organs and whatnot yeah. is not that they're useless, but that they've lost their original use. And there's this idea that, you know, biology is very adaptable. Um, life is adaptable and will make use of even the seemingly useless. And so uh, the idea that the appendix is a vestigial organ um, can be true as well as it being true that it might have a function in under some circumstances it can be used in a way that it wasn't originally adapted for well i i know that that's a that's a separate concept in evolution but th- i thought that had a separate specific term uh co-opting or what, what's this well, hey, so there's a distinction to be made here rebecca's absolutely right vestigial does not require uselessness that's, that's the key issue here. But it does mean that you've lost the primary function for which a structure exists in its certain form. And its form is also will be degraded to some degree because it's not being used as it was pre- phylogenetically okay. in the past. But there could be some residual or secondary functions that it's undergoing or maybe even some new function. And still, ta- be, and still be considered And still be considered vestigial, absolutely. Okay. But what you're talking about, Bob, is when one, when one uh, structure or protein or whatever is co-opted for another primary function and then adapts to that primary function. Okay. Right? So it's slightly different. It's no longer vestigial. Right. But like an ostrich's wings is, are clearly the, – the, the winginess of them is vestigial. Right. right? Okay. I mean that doesn't mean that, it, that they're useless, that they don't use them for display or something else. They just don't use them for flying. Okay. Yeah, or a penguin would be an even uh, more apt example in that it's very useful to have it have wings in the water for uh, to be used as flippers, okay. sort of thing. But see, actually, I would say that the the penguin's wings are more something that's been co-opted for swimming, whereas the the ostrich wings are really more vestigial. They don't really have right. any primary function mm-hmm. anymore. But I don't know. That could be a subtle dis- a subtle right. distinction. Maybe a, a threat display or. Yeah, because it's pretty impressive when those wings open up. Yeah, and you're nearby. But then there are other structures like the eyes of cave salamanders, which are 100 percent vestigial. They're just little right. b- blobs of flesh that serve no function any for anymore. Anyway, back to the appendix. <laughs> but regardless of the subtle distinctions of the term vestigial, but it was always it was always kind of the common wisdom that the appendix was truly vestigial. 
that was kind of what everybody thought, right? That it was it, the appendix really didn't do squat. I I don't know that that's literally true, though. I think that that may be the, the right. lay understanding yeah. of it. I don't know that. I don't, I don't have to look that up. That scientists actually, at some point, said this is mm-hmm. absolutely. I know Darwin thought it was useless. Let's let's say that Darwin said but there was no use for he, the appendix. He absolutely, yeah, he absolutely yeah. did. But uh, well, at least for me, in my colloquial understanding of vestigial. It, the, the appendix was the the poster boy of vestigial right. organs. Uh, there was even a famous quote from uh, the book uh, "The Vertebrate Body," this, uh, in which it was said, uh, "Its major importance would appear to be financial support of the surgical profession," uh, which is referring to the three hundred thousand appendectomies performed in the United States, at least in the year two thousand. So uh, that was kind of the prevailing opinion of a lot of people. But now, to, to the meat of this, uh, recent. Like, as Steve said, a recent article in the Journal of Evolutionary Biology stated, I quote, apparent function of the mammalian cecal appendix as a safe house for symbiotic gut microbes, preserving the flora during times of gastrointestinal infection in societies without modern medicine. So what these scientists are proposing then is that some of the good bacteria that's in your gut that's co-evolved with us uh, it hangs out in the appendix, kind of like families in an underground bunker. If your normal gut bacteria then get nuked by diarrhea or a stomach bug, these protected bacteria would then emerge and quickly repopulate uh, to help uh, help us with the digestion and to bolster our immune system. Things that they that they they do as their primary function. So that's pretty much the the, the meat of what they of what they're talking about here. Mm-hmm. They also bo- produce some new findings that to bolster their theory. They say that um, the appendixes or is it appendices? have been around for 80 million years, <laughs> uh, which is a lot longer than they thought, um, and wow. also that it evolved in two separate occasions, once in mammals and also in Australian marsupials. So that kind of is just more evidence to make you think that eh, maybe you know that there is some function here. Uh, Although those, those conclusions are uh, have been criticized. So P.C. Myers actually wrote about this in two separate posts, um, one in which he blasts the, the way that this study was um, – kind of sold to the public as Darwin is wrong, which it was completely ridiculous. And basically, to sum it up, Darwin included one paragraph in Origin of Species that said, uh, with one sentence that says that he thinks the appendix is useless. And it's like, you know what, Darwin's dead, and he was wrong about a lot of stuff, so get over it. Um, And that's not the most interesting part of this study, obviously. Um, And then he wrote a, a nice long post in which he uh he he highlighted the things that he fa- found interesting but then was very critical of a number of points um including the idea that the fact that this feature has been around for 80 million years means that it was necessarily evolved for that that specific function um he points out that it's possible that um it was a a side effect of the way that the intestines sort of connected i think mm-hmm. i might be saying this wrong Interesting. but that yeah it's just it just happened to be there and uh it, the appendix turned out to be a uh, what he says is a mostly harmless thing that got passed along was mostly harmless and that it could be a detriment in some species and so was phased out so he he points out that this research does make an argument for some of those things but it's not by any means conclusive Right. It depends on whether or not you're more, you think that species that don't have it don't have it because their ancestors didn't have it or because they lost it because it was selected against. Right. Right. Or 
does every species who have it did, did they do they share a common ancestor who had it with the species in between having lost it, or did they independently evolve it? It may be one of those features that's easy to evolve, and so will crop up multiple times. So there are multiple phylogenetic interpretations. What this paper really did a good job of was laying out the history, the phylogenetic history of the appendix, all in one location. But uh, but of course, the, and the, the key point he makes about the creationist abuse of this evidence is that yeah. they're saying that this is sort of evidence against evolution, but the but the problem is this evidence is based upon a phylogenetic analysis, right? An evolutionary right. relationship. Without evolution, none of this actually matters. Yeah, or you, you, you can't say, you know, uh-huh. yeah, phylogeny proves that there is no phylogeny, right? You can't, that's yeah. an inherent contradiction. You can't invoke this evidence to prove that evolution didn't happen. That makes no sense. Yeah, the, the two ways I thought that they would attack it, first off, I thought that it's really going to have no substantive impact on, on, that, on the evolution creation debate. It's just a minor a minor p- point ultimately, but the obvious one would be that, you know, oh, look, evolution was wrong, you know, therefore evolution is wrong. I mean, you know, one little correction in evolution, they'll, they'll kind of point to the fact that oh, all of, you know, obviously that yeah. all of evolution is wrong. Yeah, they, they try to sweep it all away. Right, and then the second, the I could see them attacking Darwin himself for, for being wrong. Uh, that's that's another possibility. I, I think. That well, they, the, that it's they not just do. a possibility, though, and it's not the creationists. I think the problem here is with the scientists and the the guys who published the data, and then those who publicized the data went with the story of Darwin is wrong. If if they had just presented their data without trying to drum up media a media shitstorm, right? I mean, because that's the only reason why you would ever throw that in there. You know, like it's crazy. Darwin is wrong. Yeah. It, it is. It has nothing to uh, do with the research. Yeah, the thing um, is, Dar- Darwin's conception of evolution is 150 years old. He got a lot of things right. He made uh, tremendous advances in our understanding of the origin of species, but he got a ton of stuff wrong because we have right. lots of information that he did not have. Right? We've progressed 150 years since Absolutely. Darwin, but it's a, it's really a cheap. And it is a cheap grab at headlines to say, oh, our research in which we discover some new wrinkle or element to evolution or some specific aspect of it proved that Darwin was wrong, you know. Right. I mean, they haven't they haven't discovered anything that um, upsets the, you know, the idea, our our idea of evolution. All they've they've done is added more information to what we know of evolution. The worst example of this was the New Scientist article from about, I think, a year ago now about the fact that there's horizontal genetic transfer Right, so like one species through you know viral inclusions or other other mechanisms can pass genetic material horizontally to other species. Mm-hmm. Darwin's little hand-drawn diagram of you know once to one species splits into two, they're forever separate is not literally true because there are some exceptions to that, especially like at the bacterial level and even and even with other or more complex species, there could there could still be some horizontal transfer. But that just deepens our understanding of the complexity of evolution and all of its you know, various aspects. It does not in any way violate the basic principles of evolution. But the new scientist you know, blaring headlines, Darwin was wrong you know, about the tree yeah, of life. It's sensational. It's, it, it's yeah. ridiculous. And all it is is just is, it's a completely unnecessary fodder for the creationists. Yeah, it's just that, that poor salesman ta- tactic. Yeah. That, that's the only reason why we're even discussing this uh, study's impact on the creation yeah. evolution debate. It's like every that time we discover a new particle, we can say, Einstein was wrong. He didn't yeah, know right. about this particle. <laughs> right. I mean, come on. 
All right, one more quick email, and then we're going to go on to our interview. This one comes from Scott Esslinger from LaGrande, Oregon, and he writes, Found this on the web and had to laugh. It also kind of makes me mad. Would love if you could destroy this claim on the show. Keep up the good work. And then he links to the Pocket Pain Doctor. This is an iPhone app. Interestingly, Engadget reviewed this as a crap app. <laughs> uh, this is... Correct. It is crap. So there's... Holy crap. Yeah, the Blue Wave and the Red Wave apps. One... You, you know, you download it for your iPhone, and one fills the screen with a blue light, and the other one a red light, and that's it. Now, the blue light is supposed to relieve seasonal depression, fatigue, and anxiety. Oh, God. While the red light treats is for the temporary relief of muscle and joint pain. You know what? I- Get a free solitaire if that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's just a color, right? Because it's the it's the <laughs> precise wavelength that you need. It's crap. The blue one is based upon research about seasonal affective disorder, and there is a, again, like a lot of things, there's a sliver of truth to it in that there is research showing that you know certain frequencies of light probably do activate you know visual pathways, and that may be implicated. You know, the absence of that uh, may be implicated in seasonal affective disorder, but that doesn't mean that a little iPod screen is going to have any effect. And there's certainly no clinical data showing that th- there is any benefit to, to this kind of this kind of treatment. That's absolutely... You know what? Get puppy wallpaper on your iPhone. Right. That will cheer you up a lot better. But the Red Wave one is even worse because what they link to to support their claims are studies showing that infrared laser therapy... Is basically because it's heating, you know, the soft tissue can relieve joint and muscle pain, right? That and now they're equating. You see some guy holding up his iPhone to his elbow with the red light shining on his elbow. I'm sorry, dude, but that's not an infrared laser coming out of your iPhone. <laughs> wow, I think it's safe to assume that the iPhone is not producing coherent light. Right, right. <laughs> unbelievable. But I'm sure some people will d- use it and think that it works. You know, they get a nice placebo effect off of it, but. We need a crap detector app. Hey, where's Jay? Uh, Jay Jay's is, not here. Uh, dusting off. <laughs> he's dusting off fossils in the bad. I thought it was awful looking quiet. For, in for, here. Looking, looking for Velociraptor. Isn't he hiking oh. through the Alps. He's he's uh, searching for the Cluckasaurus. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> stupid Cluck. I thought he I thought he was on Skype with us, but just had laryngitis or something. Oh right. no, no, he's taking that mime class. Remember. <laughs> right. Oh, that mime podcasting class. Yeah, yeah. you're doing a good job, Jay. Uh, Keep it up. You're in a little tiny box. I get it. <laughs> yes, it's Smaller. windy. Yes, we get it. <laughs> now he's driving a car. Oh, okay. Now he's telling us that we should go on with our interview. Well, we're sitting here at TAM7 with... TV's Adam Savage. Yeah, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, by coincidence, we were all in a wedding party this morning. We uh, were, an impromptu wedding party. I was honored to be asked to be the, the, the ring bearer. Yeah, that was awesome. That was great. Rebecca Watson I, and said Rodriguez got married on our podcast. I, I think that was the first podcast wedding, maybe. I don't know. Possibly. We're going to have to Wikipedia that or you, something. You know, I, I, who's going to cross-check? Just yeah, say. It's yeah, the first yeah. podcast wedding. Absolutely. So how did it feel to be Gollum this morning? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm a sucker for a, a good wedding. Randy didn't believe it, but I said I got a little misty, and I did. I cried three it's times because of this freaking wedding. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's a, it's a lovely, it's a lovely ritual. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was cool. 
So, Adam, I have to say, in, in the last year, I've gotten my two daughters into the Mythbusters, which is always my goal. And it's so cute to hear my six-year-old girl light up when the Mythbusters come on. Go, I love Adam and Jamie. <laughs> They're so funny. <laughs> they just love your show. So how do you appeal to a six-year-old and also to a 44-year-old and it all works? We're not, we're, it's because we're not trying. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's huh. you know, there was, we were just talking in the panel out there at TAM about this, about... You know, how, how do you reach out to the kids? And Penn made the very salient point. If you try, you're insulting them. Mm-hmm. And you're violating the trust they put in you. Mm-hmm. There's that uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson says in Self-Reliance, that to know that what is true in your secret heart is true for all men. That is genius. And I take that to mean that if you do the thing that you're interested in, it carries, when it's good and when you're honest about it, a universal truth. And one of the strange things about me and Jamie, I mean, me through training, I, I wanted to be up in front of the camera. I, I trained as an actor for a long time before becoming a maker of things for a decade and a half. But Jamie never wanted, never sought that out, never actually thought it, still hates that part of the job. However, he is peculiar, peculiarly egoless when you mm-hmm. put him up in front of the camera and honest about what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that resonates. I, I, you know, of all the, the one lesson I think I've learned from seven years of doing MythBusters is that it's just about it's about hosts that engage with the material. That's what makes a show you want to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys are obviously having a good time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I know oh, you've told yeah. us before it's it's blue collar hard work, but it's it's a labor of love. Apparently, that's that comes across. Well, and you know, and more and more and more, we're we are. We are uh, uh, generating the content, executive producing the, the content, and being a, a owning the show. Yeah, I mean, really feeling like it's our show. You know, when we when we they say you got to do another Alaska special, and we're like, oh crap, another Alaska special. We already went last year. What are we going to do this year? And Jamie's like, I like to build a boat out of ice. And we're like, cool. Yeah, <laughs> great. <laughs> Why not? So as you uh, as the show has progressed and 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 you guys uh, your personalities are, are are more central to it or or whatever you've gotten more power essentially it's creative control over the show. Um, well, it's never like we didn't have creative control. It actually just had to do with what we wanted to do with it. Mm-hmm. Creative control wouldn't make our ideas producible if they weren't good ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it would after a certain point, which is why some shows crash and burn. But um, Jamie and I happen to have uh, the team that, that is the, the core of Mythbusters, which is me and Jamie, our director-producer, Alice Dallow, who's from Australia, and our executive producer in the UK, actually, Dan Tapster, who oversees the editing of the show in Australia and the production in America. He spends every morning on the phone with us and every afternoon on the phone with Sydney. Dan is a fantastic executive producer with a great feel for story and also happens to be relatively egoless when it comes to the right idea. Mm-hmm. So you know, we may disagree about the, the, the protocol of the throwing out ideas and stuff like that, but we never disagree about the actual ideas. You know, there, it's, there's a right way to do the show, and we find that we don't have to go, climb over any personality to get to that right idea. Yeah, your, your producers trust you essentially with the material? And we trust them. And yeah. we trust them with the material, you know. And if they if they miss a point, which happens less and less, I mean, the editors at this point engage so deeply with the material that they write us. I mean, I get letters from the editors' uh, emails just saying, "I just did a spit take with my coffee from something you did on the show." Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah. You, it, and this is still uh, it's a lot of fun for you. This is what you want to be doing. 
Yeah, it really is. It's a tremendous amount of fun. I mean, like I said, this sense of ownership and producing so much more of the material and engaging with it so much more. Um, both Jamie and I are inveterate collectors of skills and have been on the Learn While You Earn program forever. Uh, and this is no exception. You know, We're now learning how to produce a show. I, the one thing I want to do that I won't ever get the chance to do on this show is actually cut one, cut one and write one. Go mm-hmm. to Australia, watch the dailies. Take all the rushes, write a script, and work with an editor to cut one. That's like the uh, that would be the finish of my education, and I, I won't get to do it on this show, a different mm-hmm. show perhaps, but not this one. Adam, I, last year you gave a, a very funny uh, talk about the uh, Maltese Falcon that you made. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. I never got to see a picture of it. Oh, I don't think I have one on my phone. I've discovered a downside to going around and doing talks about the stuff that you're interested in. I've increased my own Google signal to noise ratio. Yeah. <laughs> There's a half the links that I've, I have the links on the Maltese Falcon now. When I do yeah. check in Google searches on everything, I'm I'm yeah. curious about half the half the searches now include my talk and <laughs> stuff that I've written about the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> I've got to get past my own debris <laughs> to get to the new to get, to get to the new stuff. But I want one. You, by the end of that, by the end of your talk, I was drooling for one of those. <laughs> okay, well, so here's where we stand on the Maltese Falcon. I actually held a real one in New York this spring. How many real ones there are and what constitutes a real one is debatable. Um, a lot of people who collect things that are this expensive don't want to be in the public eye, and so I, I'll keep that trust sure. for them. Um, but holding onto the real one and taking 350 pictures, as I did of it, in wow. 20 minutes. <laughs> literally. Yeah, li- oh, I Literally, I put out a I, – I didn't have a ruler with me. I found out at the last minute I was going to get to go see it, so I put up a dollar bill. Right. And I put the bird, and I literally went – I mean, I'm going to have a book this thick of the angles, and I'm going to go back and re-sculpt it from scratch. How heavy was it? The one I have that's in bronze is 28 pounds. Oh, I love Jeez. stuff like that. And it's, you just haven't come across that much metal in one chunk before, yeah. because when you go and grab it, there's this like three-stage holy crap moment where you go to grab it, you're like, oh, it's cold. And it's, oh, it's heavy. Whoa. Holy crap. Yeah, yeah. It's like you <laughs> literally can't get it off the table. And I mean, half the people can't get it off the table. Yeah. It's so heavy and compact. When you, saw the, when you saw the original, is there anything, did you see anything that you had, ne- you had not noticed anywhere else in any of the pictures you might have seen previously? Like, whoa, yeah, that detail. Or was it... No. Anything new? No, no surprises the, then. The general overall topology is totally clear to me. Okay. My problem isn't with the general overall topology. In that regard, my, my replica is perfect. Every, every bump is accounted for. Okay. But the attitude of those bumps, whether this way, oh. that way, that way, that oh. way, how, they, how it fits, um, and specifically on the face, is the thing that it's very hard to get from one auction photograph from the front, one from the side, without knowing the kind of lens that was being used. Mm-hmm. Those are those are tough things to solve. Yeah. Uh, so the pictures that I took hopefully will grant me that kind of access to really know that I've got it, that it looks right from every angle that I've got. And I will literally go back and check it through the same camera lens. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> did, did you wish you had a laser scanner with you uh, when you saw that? I mean, would that be the ultimate? That would would be kind of the ultimate. It's actually there still is there still would be a fair amount of work after I'd laser scanned it and had it cut out of something. The laser scanner is not perfect. Uh, I actually can I do have permission to go back to New York and laser scan it. Um, will you? Yeah, I think I will. Okay. Uh, but the laser scan is not perfect. It require it would require laser scanning it, three D printing it, casting the three D printing, right, 
And you'd lose something each. And, and I'd lose something. So I'd have to 3D print it too large. Way too large, right? For the for the number of castings that I know I'm going to do of it, the number of molding and casting cycles, Mm -hmm. then I'd probably pour clay into that, and then I would take that clay and start to work the clay master and make it much better. There are little triple undercuts that I wouldn't be able to see in the in the laser scan that I will only be able to get by looking at the at the photos. There are divots and pits that won't show up on the laser scan. Mm. Those kind of things. So, how heavy Mm. is the original? The original is lead, and it supposedly weighs 45 pounds. Now, there are people that say that I don't think they're handling the lead ones in most of the shots in the film. When you pick up something that weighs 28 pounds, mm-hmm. and you think about Humphrey Bogart going, you know, running with it, there's no way. Yeah, right. I mean, they, we, I know that uh, that uh, they made at least one resin one and several plaster ones, and I, I, I'm convinced that those were used for man, many of the shots that you see in the film. Mm-hmm. Where anyone's carrying it around, basically. Yeah. And those are gone, huh? Well, there's a resin one that sold at the Pro, uh, Profiles in History, I think, back in 94 for somewhere around $100,000. Oh. Well, that's just a, that's a little bit out of my range. <laughs> Maybe $60,000, $100,000. Then there's the two. I've lost track of one of the lead ones. Um, the other lead one, another lead one is owned by Dr. Gary Milan down in Los Angeles, and I've yet to contact him. I, there's a guy I know who has, there's a guy I've corresponded with by email who supposedly has three plasters down in Santa Cruz, but we've been playing phone tag and email tag to try and get a time for me to go down and see them. Yeah. Um, there's no pictures of those, so I'm very excited to see, to yeah. see them in person. So let's say that the, uh, the Mythbusters ends next year and you're, you're wide open. Mm-hmm. What would you want to do? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I'd, I'd be looking for the next project that would allow me to do the same, a lot of the same kind of things I get to do on the show. Um, I would also look to own that project. Yeah. Uh, I don't own the Mythbusters brand. I don't own the merchandising rights or any of those things. And that will be something I'll rectify on the next project. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also like... I'm interested in, in other aspects of entertainment. I'm interested in acting. I'm interested in, in directing. I'm interested in executive producing. So all of that would be coming into into the projects that I do post-Mythbusters. But uh, at this point, our ratings are absolutely as strong as they've ever been. Um, on an average premiere night, we get between, I think, one and a half and one and three-quarter million people watching, wow. nice. um, which often places us at the very top of our demographic on advertising-supported cable in that time slot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, seven years in, that's kind of unheard of. Our seasons build. We don't have a big premiere that then peters out. We Mm. actually often start kind of small, 1.4, 1.5, and then build up, 1.6, 1.7, 1.8. American Idol and Dancing with the Stars kicked our ass this year. Mm. But once they finished, our ratings went right back up to where they should have been. You know, they've experimented with different ways of airing Mythbusters. First, they would try an episode or two every couple of weeks. You know, they'd have two new ones and then three weeks off and then two new ones. Then they found a few years ago that they had a really great run where they aired eight episodes in a row. and The ratings climbed every single week. That's generally what it seems like we try and do is we'll make a block and they'll air just like this most recent block. I think 10 episodes in a row. There's another block like that coming up in the fall. And you've got to shave your beard. Yeah, no, this is, um, is it Saturday today? Mm-hmm. One more day, one more day of this beard, and then Monday we're back to shooting uh, this new season. And uh, I've, I let it grow. I like to get it shaggy, and my wife loves it, so uh, that's the vote that matters. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. But I, I like to be neat 
for the uh, for the show. So yeah. I'll I'll take it all the way out. Yeah, you'd look amazingly clean wearing one of our skeptics guys. <laughs> <to the university. laughs> I got a black medium up in my. Those room. are for you. Oh, these are yeah. oh, backups. Excellent. Backups. Some backups. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just so in case. you mentioned directing. Um, so what would you do? What would you want to direct? I would just take a stab in the dark and say sci-fi, but maybe there's something. I don't else. know. I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I'm ambitious. I, I want to try a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, I've been. Uh, I I have a 5D Canon 5D Mark II camera that oh, shoots wow. HD video. Yeah. The footage that I'm getting with it is absolutely magnificent. I am uh, currently writing something that I want to shoot a little, just a little side piece, and I've finally made the decision that I'm not going to operate the camera. I was like, mm-hmm. I have this camera, but I don't have to shoot with it because I don't know how to shoot with it. Yeah. <laughs> but I work with these brilliant cameramen. Yeah. I'm going to conscript them for a couple weekends and we'll get something in the can. Cool. <laughs> Any chance you're bringing your production to the East Coast as opposed to remaining in California? Uh, you mean permanently? Well, you know, you know for whatever project that uh, might come it up. Could be. Uh, it could be. That, uh, you know, it could be that we end up executive producing something that happens on the East Coast as opposed to the West Coast. But, I mean, right now, both Jamie and I are, are stationed in San Francisco and we love it. That's where my kids are. But you have family in New York and Connecticut. I do have family in New York uh, and Connecticut and Rhode Island and uh, Rockland County, all over the place. Connecticut has some very favorable tax exemptions these days. I didn't know if you were aware about. It. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Oh, no, but there, no, it's true. There are lots of productions coming to Connecticut because they do have some of the most favorable um, tax incentives now in the whole country. That's good to know, Evan. So. I, 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 I was just in San Francisco two weeks ago. Don't move to Connecticut. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, I'm going to punch you. There, there is the, the, it was hard for me when I realized that my children were Californians. Mm-hmm. Growing up in New York on the yeah. East Coast, uh, from generations of East Coasters, you know, Mayflower on one side of the family, and realizing my kids were Californians, they're not going to know what a snow day is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. A snow day. Like someone calls you at 6 in the morning and says, too much fun outside, no school. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to know that. I'm sad that they won't. I tell them about it. Yeah. This mythical snow day. Every few weeks, I pull them out of school on a trip over the weekend to L.A. or something like that. It's not know. the same, though. It, they the don't same, have pollution no. days or Smog days. They get beautiful, no. rain, rain beautiful consistent weather all the time. Um, here's the problem with San Francisco. It's cold. Yeah. But the problem isn't that it's cold. The problem is it's actually never warm. And that's what started to get to me after 20 years. You, there's like two or three hot summer nights in San Francisco per year when like everyone goes out in a t-shirt and no one's wearing underwear and it's great. Um, you sit outside in the cafe and you feel like, oh, this is awesome. But it disappears almost immediately. So, Adam, you are a huge friend and supporter of the skeptical movement. And I'm, I'm always curious to hear from people like you, you know, who – Maybe not the typical sort of nerdy skeptic inside inside the movement. How do you think you're doing, and what are we not doing that we should be? It's hard to say what what could be done. Again, when you get to that idea of thank you of of outreach of proselytizing, it's inherently problematic. I take seriously the role we play within the skeptic community on the show, even though that's not the purpose of the show. It's right. a side effect. It's a great side effect, but it's a side effect of, of the narrative that, that you know, we've developed over the years. And I think that – actually, I think, I, I think the skeptical community is doing great. A reading of the headlines on Reddit mm-hmm. and, and FARC, especially mm-hmm. – I mean all of those sites, Boing Boing. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all the top social networking sites on the planet. 
Dig and uh, Gizmodo and Gadget, all of them have very similar uh, critical thinking, liberal, humanist bents, except for the the odd bit of spam that makes it onto Reddit's front page. Uh, It's generally pretty – the skeptics are well represented on the World Wide Web uh, to the tune of millions of hits a day of of people really looking critically. Um, I just tweeted the other day about – did you see – have you seen the recent Bill Moyers interview with the health – Health insurance, former health insurance executive. No, you gotta, you gotta go search for this. Bill Moore's interviews of former uh, VP at Cigna, uh, and the guy describes basically how they manufactured public opinion by threatening politicians back during the Clinton years, ninety three, ninety four. Like, dem- and they specifically targeted the Democrats. Like, you want to support this? We will actually go to your community and dry up your fundraising, and we will. We will fund your opponents. I'm not surprised. Yeah, it was wow. astonishing. Bill Moyers is one of the great proto skeptics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel like at, at the same time you've got your Fox News and you've got your, you know, CNN and ridiculous New Yorker ombudsman trying to say that you know, well, calling something torture that everyone in the world agrees is torture is somehow picking sides because some small cadre of of terrible people have tried to make it about a debate um aside from that i I really do feel like the web has a super critical thinking bent to it Mm -hmm. i I agree in that i think we are hitting above our weight on when it comes to certain venues like the internet and uh the other day i was looking at itunes at the listing of science podcasts which i occasionally look at because that's Mm -hmm. how we're listed and out of like the top 25 science podcasts a full 10 of them were skeptical i mean way overrepresented right uh, but when you get to mainstream media or traditional or old media or whatever, nothing that's, would, that's really hardcore skeptical except for the few that have broken through. Mythbusters certainly is the trailblazer. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Penn and Teller's bullshit on Showtime. Don't forget and, South Park. Yeah. South Park, absolutely. <laughs> but again, you say it's, it's the side effect. It's not sort but, of I the mean, focus, uh, but it's a great side effect. And South Park is actually, as far as its reach goes, more important than either bullshit or mythbusters. Uh, yeah, that may be true. You know, I, that, that because, of the, uh, because they are a comedy show and they're wildly successful. At uh, and, and that's a trend begun by The Simpsons. I really do yeah. feel like yes, they're following those footsteps. Yeah. Family Guy yeah. also. Yep. You know, everything with a grain of salt and nobody is above our radar for, for ridicule. Right, that's right. A real. That's that's really important. So yeah, we're, you know, I I agree that I think we're making inroads, and I think that you have inspired a lot of people. To say, hey, you know, I want to do a show that's like MythBusters, but mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more scientific or more skeptical or or with whatever less explosions, well, but that was not none of which are sell- selling points. But uh, yeah, I think that there's a sense of frustration in the skeptical community that that we're not that we're st- we still feel like a tiny minority. Well, but know? I disagree. Yeah. I, I, I recognize that see, I think that if if critical thinking is in minority, it's it's always going to be in minority. It's kind of like geniuses are in a minority too. Yeah. I'm not equating us with geniuses. But I mean if Jamie was here and I wasn't, Jamie would wax on a lot about how sick he is of having to hold to uh hold to conventions of the narrative structure in order to make our show have an arc that the producers like and viewers like. If Jamie had his druthers, the show would be uh, a lot more of us building and talking about what we're building and 
almost none of the finales. In mm-hmm. fact, he would have shows where we would finish going, ah, we didn't figure it out. Oh, well, see you next week. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe that show will work, but I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. And it's not the show that I want to produce. And honestly, I also recognize that a lot of the time um, we do our most important work on Mythbusters in the middle of the show, in Acts 3 and 4. Now we have It's a six-act show for 44 minutes. Um, acts 5 and 6 are usually the stunt. Acts 5 and 6 are just confirming something or getting a, a, a nice out that keeps people watching for the full hour. That's the narrative structure. You know, we, we, we play with that. But, you know, Bill Prady, the producer of Big Bang Theory, yeah. who's the keynote speaker here at TAM, he, uh, he said today in our panel... You know, all doctor shows are critical thinking shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it is. I don't think it's as much of a minority as as the skeptic movement would would allow. I mm-hmm. think it's. I think it has more traction than they think. You know, <laughs> we need a movie like something like Iron Man that I thought had a, a great deal of integrity. Iron Man. Those guys. Those guys. Robert Downey Jr. mentioned MythBusters in a couple of interviews yeah. as inspiration for the show. John cool. Favreau. Uh, tweeted to me when we were in Chicago that he watches the show with his son. Um, they're very much paying attention to that and uh, commensurate with that, actually. And this is an important part of the critical thinking movement is the DIY, is the DIY movement, mm-hmm. the the Make Magazine instructables zeitgeist that's, uh, that's, that's happening right now, which really just dovetailed perfectly with Mythbusters. And I think it's coincidence and it's a perfect uh, symbiotic relationship we have. Um, this is the point at which people are starting to hack their technology like they started to hack their cars in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you can make magazine. You can open up your electronics and start to do new things with them. Um, things that you wouldn't have thought, you know, people were like, oh, as things get more solid state, they'll be less like mucking with your microwave. But actually, no, it's turning out to be more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's really, I think that's fantastic. And that's also making people realize that their world is smaller and more parsable for them. Mm-hmm. I think in the next Iron Man movie, Iron Man should fly to where you guys are and come down and like, ask your help about something. They're almost done shooting and they haven't called, so I don't think it's going to happen. They do that in comic books sometimes. You know, they mix in, like, yeah. crossover. Yeah, well, they you, cross over you, between real, you know, real characters and, uh, and, and the fictional ones. Did you see there was a website that chronicled all of Michael Jackson's appearances in Marvel Comics? I didn't see that. Oh, yeah. He appeared in a whole bunch of them. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> how about the Mythbusters? You guys make appearance in comics? Uh, we have actually made some appearances in comics. I mean, uh, also in XKCD. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of times he's mentioned us. Um, I saw you guys on that move, the Darwin Awards. Movie. We were on Darwin oh, Awards. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, right. an unwatchably bad yes. film. It was. Except for Boy. your moment, which was awesome. Yes. Right. Appalling. <laughs> appalling. That was really fun, though. David Arquette was very nice, and we had a really fun day in Reno at this surplus store. I bought a bunch of crap there, too. <laughs> um, we, also had the, the, uh, we also had the cameo on CSI, which Ooh. was great. That was uh, a bunch of people emailed me. CSI had aired an episode where they had... Uh, Shot a tire into a head, just like I had designed for uh, the, the Willa Big Rigs truck tire mm-hmm. delaminating on the freeway, yeah, yeah, yeah. kill you, yeah. behead you. Mm. And so I called my lawyer just to get the right number, and he got me the number for the writer's room at CSI. And I called up, and they're like, who is this, please? I said, it's Adam Savage. And they're like, oh, hold on. <laughs> and Rich Catalani, the head, you know, I, I guess not the head writer, but he's one of their key writers, the writer of that episode, got on, and he said, you're not pissed off, right? I said, no, 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 far from it. I'm really honored that you've used our experiment. He goes, truth be told, it's the second time we've <laughs> lifted an experiment wholesale from your show. I love your show. He was a forensic specialist in NYPD for a couple decades. And uh, 
that just sparked a friendship. We we did the the entertainment industry thing is that you send swag back and forth. Mm-hmm. You put together a bunch of t-shirts and hats and videos right. and you send them and then they send a bunch of jackets and hats and stuff like that. So we had the swag exchange and then they asked us to come and appear on the show. It was great. That's awesome. That's that is good. cool. And you bring up CSI. That is an excellent example yeah. of a very good critical thinking show. Absolutely. And it's number. It's been number one. Is it still number one? I mean, uh, yes. I imagine so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, it could be argued. It, CSI and the crime procedurals demonstrate the dangers of too much critical thinking. Right. Uh, you've got the CSI effect with juries going. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was know. a DNA. I want to see DNA testing. No DNA. Yeah. Innocent. Yeah. Wow. Well, they're overselling the technology. They're saying well, they can seem like you can get DNA results back in a day when they take weeks. And there's had- actually a lot of crime procedural stuff I'd love to take on on the show. It tends to be wow. not very visual to do. There's one which we were we are actually talking about a whole crime scene episode, and I was bringing up one which I liked. A researcher in Seattle uh, did some tests to demonstrate that distance equated exactly to blurriness mm-hmm. in terms of being able to recognize someone. Mm-hmm. So if he was able to show if someone was 40 feet away, you could do a you know, three-pixel Gaussian blur, and it would look like this up close. And you could actually demonstrate, well, 40 feet away, it's pretty hard to recognize someone. Mm-hmm. And I thought the research was interesting. I read his abstract of his paper on it, and I emailed him and said, did you take into account, though, that in the distance they're moving? I would think that the light moving over the topography of the face is going to reveal more about its structure to your brain than the mere visual ah, input. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And he said, yeah, we thought about it. No, we haven't done any research on it. And I thought, wow, that's that's like leaving a big fracking elephant in the room yeah. as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Right, right. Also, how actually... people move. You know, I, oh, yeah. What's that? Also, how people move. Right. I often uh, recognize people I know – 100% by Absolutely. how they're by their gait. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or how about, how about changing facial expressions as, mm-hmm. as they're moving? Exactly. And, Absolutely. Right? Yeah, all of those things that we're pulling in uh, informationally on a genetic level mm-hmm. just because as a survival mechanism, you know, the same thing that makes your dog bark because you're nervous about seeing the other dog. He's picking up cues of yours. We're picking up those cues from each other all the time. Clever and those minds. also have recognition factors. You're right. Adam, before you go. Yeah. Right. We uh, we remember <laughs> last year you did the was it sulfur hexafluoride was the thing that made your voice really yes, low. Yes, yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah, sulfur hexafluoride. Okay, we could do that electronically now. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a much easier way than having to yes. go buy that. We did very, it the hard way. This very is, expensive <laughs> gas. Right. There's a, the funny thing about that uh, the, about that clip is we showed that to one of the people at Discovery and we showed them two clips, one that we'd faked and that one, and they thought they thought the fake one was real, and they looked at that one and said. It's just so clear that it's that it's not real. <laughs> wow. You mean, you mean maybe maybe something like this? And my voice sounds like this, and yet somehow I'm still funny. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Thanks. Awesome. We've been having so much fun with yeah. you. Yeah. 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 Right? No. I would wear that around all day. <laughs> right, right, right. This box right here. <laughs> Honey, can I get some coffee? <laughs> get it yourself, Wall. Adam, turn that damn thing off. <laughs> you want to try the high setting one? Oh, right. sure. Real quick. Yes. The, the helium setting. Oh, yeah. No. This, this one, one makes, makes me speak in British. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. exactly. You're, You're like, like one of the, the uh, midgets sort of time banders. Oh, my life's not white anymore. <laughs> You're very lovely. Wait, what is that? Um, you, you want to be leader? leader? No, we, we agreed. No, no leaders. leaders. Right, then, then shut up and listen to me. <laughs> Four foot one. <laughs> uh, what a great, great movie. That was awesome. That's one of our favorites. It's one terrific.
Gilliam is one of my heroes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Adam, we love you. We love your show. Can't wait to interview you next year. Thank you so yeah. much. I'll be back. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much. It's been Thanks, incredible. Thanks. Thank you again. Thanks. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So ready. Yes. Totally. What, what were you saying? I was multitasking. Bring it. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, ring it. Item number one. Scientists discover evidence of iridescence in a 40 million year old fossil feather. Item number two, scientists develop a new computer model of the effects of the solar cycle on climate change, indicating a much greater effect than previously believed. And item number three, a survey of nearby galaxies has located several stars that appear to be older than the age of the universe. Rebecca, go first. Damn it. Hey. (laughs) You know, all right, last week I knew exactly which one it was. You don't call me first, no. This week, (laughs) I have not read a single science paper <laughs> except for the one in the appendix totally read that it came useless after a while though iridescence in a 40 million year old fossil feather that's tricky i i'm totally at a loss here <sighs> okay move on wait concentrate i'm trying to multitask <laughs> ah. i'm podcasting while thinking and that's not it's not good that's i like the head. idea of an iridescent feather fossil so that's plausible because <laughs> I like it. Because uh, it's Because it's likability <laughs> a, a computer model showing the effects of climate change in regards to the solar cycle. I, I totally buy that as well, that the solar cycle has something to do with climate change. However, is it much greater than previously believed? I'm thinking... No. Nearby galaxies showing several stars that appear to be older than the age of the universe sounds implausible at first. However, there are a lot of ways that things can appear older than the age of the universe, but aren't, actually. Um, that happens all the time. So I'm going to say that the solar cycle does not have a greater effect on climate change than previously believed, I guess. Okay, Evan. Yeah, fiction. Uh, the iridescence in a 40 million year old fossil feather. Uh, I think that's plausible. Something iridescent got caught up in the fossilization process and held its iridescence. The second one regarding the new computer model of the effects of the solar cycle on climate change. A much greater effect than previously believed. Yeah, I don't think that that's correct. And I know a lot of people who are somewhat skeptical of man-made global warming and climate change and so forth hang their hat often on what's going on with the solar cycle. I tend to agree that that one is funky. And, uh, you know, these stars that appear to be older than the age of the universe, Steve, I, I I don't think you would have put that up there unless it was science because that just is so contradictory in itself that uh, it's got to be the curveball so i'll agree with rebecca that the solar cycle on climate change that one is fiction okay bob is it jay's turn yes jay yeah jay he jay already minds me the answer so okay oh this is a tough one iridescence in a 40 million year old fossil feather iridescence of course is 
thin film interference, which I, I love that phenomenon. But how would how would thin film interference fossilize? I guess you could have a mineral that could fossilize. The mineral would have to be also trans transparent. I guess that's possible. Uh, so I'm going to go with that one. I mean, I'm, I think that's real. Let's see. Um, solar cycle on climate change. Now, Steve, can I ask you? I, I think the key word here is climate change. Are you? Do you mean by that what everyone thinks when they say climate change? I'm just going to stick with climate change. All right. I think that's a, that's an important uh, distinction. So I'm going to say that is science as well because of that. The third one. Now, years ago, I remember reading for the first time quite, quite a while ago that there were stars that seemed to be older than the age of the universe, and of course, that's that's impossible. Um, but then, of course, as the, as uh, estimates were refined, it made sense. Uh, but the age back then, though, we thought the universe was what was the the figure people threw around all the time: ten to twenty billion years old. So people would that's average broad. and say, "Oh, fifteen billion." That's that that's pretty much what they were saying. 10, 20 years ago, I think. But now it's they really got it nailed down. Was 13.8 or something? So I, th- so the fact that now they're saying that now, I think, is uh, makes me really think that it's not as light. You know, it doesn't make as much sense as it did years ago when the error bars were were so big. So I'm going to say that one is fiction. Okay, so you all agree that scientists discover evidence of iridescence in a 40-million-year-old fossil feather is science, and that one is, in fact, science. Yay. Who do you guys Maybe. think did this research? We, I'll give you a hint. We, we interviewed him very recently. Uh, Banachek. No. Uh, <laughs> Adam, Adam Savage. <laughs> um, Dr. Richard Prum, chair of the Department of Ecology uh, and Evolutionary yes. Biology hey. at Yale that we interviewed about what? about. The evolution of birds from dinosaurs. Yeah. We talked about his research into Good uh, into fossil feathers and the fact that his team is uh, discovering the mechanisms of color in feathers. And this is uh, the uh, I guess the latest to come out of that line of research. And what they are finding is that the um, the preserved color producing nanostructure in fossilized feathers, including structure that would produce iridescence. Or changing color depending on the angle of observation, because as Bob said, of the thin film interference, like you would see in an oil slick on a on a driveway, for example. Cool. Yeah, very cool. This is uh, done through electron micro- microscopic examination, and they found that uh, the so the structures that they were looking at were in fact melanosomes. Previously, researchers thought they might have just been big bacterial contamination or something, but they they demonstrated clearly that they are melanosomes, which are these the proteins that would give the color to the feathers. And they're actually starting to figure out what colors they were based upon the properties of the melanosomes. So we're going to get more research, more publications out of, out of this research, but this is uh, the latest one. So the proteins themselves fossilized? The structure. The structure does. The, stru- yeah. the structure of the proteins. Yeah. Was it a very fine? It seems to me that it would have to be kind of a really fine, high, like a high-resolution fossilization. You know what I mean? They're saying um, nanostructure. And they're using yeah. an electron microscope, so that's yeah, so pretty that's, darn wow. small. Wow, I wonder yeah. if that's a very special scenario in which the, these birds were uh, fossilized. Yeah, so basically they're saying that they're discovering ultra-structural detail in the fossil feathers. And to, I'll, I'll quote Derek Briggs, who's also uh, on the paper. The discovery of ultra-structural detail in feather fossils opens up remarkable possibilities for the investigation of other features in soft-bodied fossils, like fur and even internal mm. organs. 
So this may be opening up a, a completely new uh, line of evidence from fossils. Absolutely. Awesome. That's awesome. Excellent. Very nice. Uh, let's go on to number two. Scientists develop a new computer model of the effects of the solar cycle on climate change, indicating a much greater effect than previously believed. Evident, Rebecca, you thought this one was fake. Bob, mm-hmm. you thought this one was science. And this one is science. Oh. Ah. Good job, Told Bob. Told you, Evan. Never, never go with me. Yeah, I should have known now, that. Now, we, we yeah. know that there is solar forcing, as they call it, on the, on the climate. Um, and we've talked about this previously because of the we're at a, we're currently at a pretty deep solar minimum, and that may be having some effects on you know um, recently on our climate. But what scientists did is they they didn't really know exactly what the relationship was. How what was the effect of the this eleven year you know sunspot solar cycle and how it influences the climate? And they were able to figure out some things by doing a computer model, and it, and it turns out that the effect is far greater than they had previously thought. So let me let me read the uh, the main paragraph from the the Science Daily article that describes this because it's a little tricky. It says the team first confirmed a theory that the slight increase in solar energy during the peak production of sunspots is absorbed by stratospheric ozone. The energy warms the air in the stratosphere over the tropics, where sunlight is most intense while also stimulating the production of additional ozone there that absorbs even more solar energy. Since the stratosphere warms unevenly, with the most pronounced warming occurring at lower latitudes, stratospheric winds are altered and, through a chain of interconnected processes, end up strengthening tropical precipitation. So the key here, as I understand it, is that there's a sort of self-reinforcing feedback loop created by this that amplifies the effects that the solar heating has on the, on the climate. Very interesting, and I think that we as we had uh, discussed previously that the degree to which there is man-made forcing of the climate in the warmer direction is being offset, actually, in recent years because of the fact that we're in a deep solar minimum. We're still waiting for the sunspots to bounce back. I know we had that one big sunspot cropped up a month ago, or a month and a half ago, but since then we've still been pretty much in a solar minimum. Yeah, it takes a while to kick back up, you know. Yeah, but this is longer than it usually takes. I know. What about that that news item, though, about... Uh... That's what they were predicting, but, you know, then we had a couple of spots, but they didn't really... Yeah, right, right. Yeah. it didn't take. Didn't... Hmm. Talk about not being able to control our destiny. Right. Wanting, wanting so they're to... saying sunspot 1025, a new sunspot emerged yesterday and interrupted a 51-day string of blank suns. It wasn't much of an interruption. Sunspot 1025 is small and may already be fading away. So it sounds like we're still at a pretty low ebb of sunspots. Low activity. All this means that a survey of nearby galaxies has located several stars that appear to be older than the age of the universe, and that is indeed fiction. And Bob, you hit the nail on the head with that one, so I based that on the fact that previously, going back 10, 20 years, there was that apparent dilemma that some of the oldest stars were aged at older than the current you know, average age of the universe. Yeah. But there was sort of overlapping error bars, you know, for those two things. But since then, we've refined both our age of the universe and the a- aging of the stars. And it turns out, as you would think, that the universe is indeed older than the oldest stars. In fact, um, the oldest star I could find, and I'm sure somebody correct me if this is wrong, but the one I could find is a, a star in our own galaxy they found was 13.2 billion years old where the current age of the universe is given as 13.7 billion years. So 
the universe is older than the oldest stars. But this was based on a real news item. This is it's interesting, but it's a little esoteric bit of astronomical, you know, minutia. Um, important, but <laughs> you know, astronomical minutia. Right. right. <laughs> this has to do with the initial mass function. You guys familiar with the initial mass function? The initial mass function? Yes. Oh, the IMF. No. Yes, yes, the IMF. It is in fact called Thank the you. IMF. Initial. Yep. yep. I'm good at I'm good at picking out the first letters. This has to do with the mass letters. of stars. The initial mass function refers to the distribution of the masses of stars as they are created, right? The assumption was that the IMF was pretty uniform throughout the universe. That if we looked at, you know, galaxy A, the IMF for that galaxy would be the same as for galaxy B. We assume that that's the starting point. And therefore, we could look at the ratio of high mass to low mass stars in a galaxy and, and come to some conclusions about how old that galaxy is. Uh, what they found is that for different galaxies, the IMF is actually different. It's, in fact, they, they looked at some dwarf galaxies and they showed that in dwarf galaxies, there were many more low mass stars than expected. Good yeah, job, good job. Hey, Thank you. Very good. Uh, Evan. Yes, sir. Play last week's Who's That Noisy for us. All right. Here it is, folks. I saw a lot of speculation uh, on the there email on the boards yes, about what that was. Anybody was got it right? Hardly any consensus, and nobody got it right. <laughs> it was but a I, tough one. It was a very tough one, and uh, what it is is the sound of a crop circle being made. So it's the process of you know you take your wooden plank, you hold it, you know you hold it with your ropes, you're stepping on it, and you're walking around and smashing down your wheat and creating your crop circle. And I got this sound effect from the website www.circlemakers.org, <laughs> which is Great a one-stop site. shop for uh, crop circles, how to make your own. Evidence as to how they're made, testimonies, video evidence, audio evidence, everything yeah. you want to know about crop circles. These guys make beautiful crop circles, and it totally blows away the the seriologists who claim that nobody could make such complicated. <laughs> but these guys do it on a regular basis. Come on a regular basis, they document everything they do. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very good website. So yeah, but what about out. the magnetic field of the <laughs> corn and the stalks yeah, and the, blah, blah, blah? <laughs> We have this week's Noisy to Play. All right, let's hear it. All right, folks, here it comes. Oh, months I've tried to keep this thing from happening, but I now see it's the will of sovereign being that this happened to us, that we lay down our lives in what's being done. The criminality of people, the cruelty of people. Who walked out of here today? Did you notice who walked out? Mostly white people. Hmm. Mm. Okay. Interesting. There you go, and... Well, just tune in next week, and I'll yeah, be right. the answer, and you'll. Be, it's an it's an interesting one. So, well, actually, it'll, it'll um, lead to some more for some more discussion. Next week's discussion. show is going to be oh, our live show from DragonCon. Yes, and the that's week right. after that's going to be our live show from the Nexus Conference. Yeah. So, so I don't it's know. Be a couple weeks before we reveal. Yeah, it might be a couple weeks before was. we reveal the answer. You'll have to hold, oh, boy. stay tuned. So, Rebecca, you're covering for Jay this week for the quote. I am. This uh, this was sent in by Peter. It's uh, from Rosalind Franklin, who is well known as a brilliant English scientist who helped contribute to our idea of what the structure of DNA is, along with 
Crick and Watson, of course, she died when she was only 37, so right before she would have been eligible to receive the Nobel Prize. So, And she said this, You look at science, or at least talk of it, as some sort of demoralizing invention of man, something apart from real life, and which must be cautiously guarded and kept separate from everyday existence. But science and everyday life cannot and should not be separated. Science, for me, gives a partial explanation for life. Insofar as it goes, it is based on fact, experience, and experiment. Rosalind Franklin! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nice quote. Good quote. Well, thanks for joining me again this week, guys. (laughs) Our pleasure. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 